Create an Unstoppable Life, Episode 178. Create an Unstoppable Life is all about mindset for the high achiever to help you build a life of fulfillment and freedom. I'm your host, Dina George, MD, a mindset and marketing coach and a family medicine physician. It's an honor to spend time with you today. It is a beautiful day. And it's a beautiful day because Dr. Erin Wiseman is back with us. She is burnt out to badass. She's Dr. Me first. She is a dear friend. She gives a hell of a talk in person. Everyone needs to hear her. She's loyal. She's strong. She's fierce. She's kind. And she's deeply connected to people she serves. So that's how I'd introduce you. How would you introduce you? Well, Dina, I don't think I could absolutely top that at all. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. On We're like on the cusp of spring here in Indiana. And I know down in Texas, you guys are a little bit warmer, but I've been looking forward to sitting down and talking. Just so people know, like you're, you're getting us in the conversation like after we've already talked for 15 minutes. So we're already good and warmed up. <laughs> I love you so much. I'm glad you're here. I can't thank you enough. Today's conversation is on something that I think impacts all of us. And we're talking about addiction. And the way I've been looking at addiction is that it's an answer, that people come to it as a way of answering some type of feeling or thought or urge or numbing or or something. And we all have them, whether it's food or alcohol or numbing with, I don't know, shopping or something. We all have these habits that draw us. And Aaron is an expert. So teach us, tell us everything. (laughs) Yeah, I have really seen my two worlds collide with um, coaching and with my work in family medicine, specifically around populations of substance use disorder and addiction. Uh, It's been so interesting to land in this place and just, I was telling Dina before we hopped on the recording, like, like finally finding that thread where it's like, aha there it is. That's like my, my settling spot. This is like the intersection of so many beautiful yet ugly things in my life that have come together. If you've ever coached with me or ever listened to me, you know that I don't shy away from hard conversations, that I, I say the difficult words, that I am a motivator. I'll give you a hug as well. I'm a huge hugger and then slap you on the ass to get you out the door. When it comes to my coaching, I go to the bottom, the bottom of the pit and find people and help walk with them out. And I found now that I do that in my clinical life as well, that I meet people at the very, very bottom and I'm not afraid of the dark to sit in there with them, that it has made the most profound and just life-changing work probably for them, but more for me to do that. And so I had been talking about um, uh, work addiction as I started to really define what my burnout was. I hit the bottom of the um, bottom of the barrel or what I like to describe the deep, dark chasm of burnout that I was in in around 2014 and really taking time to heal. And then later when the scab wasn't so fresh and the scar tissue was settling in, really understanding how I got to that place and more importantly, how I don't go back to that place. 
And what really came to the forefront for me was I truly have a work addiction. Um, that work is my drug through therapy, through coaching, through tapping, through Reiki, through all the things, through getting in nature and being quiet with myself. I realized for me, it probably started around like late elementary school, fourth, fifth grade, and submitted in in junior high and of course in high school, that when I got an Atta Girl or the A plus paper hung up on the wall, um, or a ribbon of achievement or something like that. It gave me a boost. It made me feel good in a world that my childhood didn't always feel very good. I actually have a pretty high ACEs score, adverse childhood experiences. And my proverbial question is like, how did I get to where I'm at? Why am I a doctor? And why are the, the kids that I grew up with, you know, um, in, in what I would consider a horrible state of life or, or have continual issues. And what I've realized is that as humans, we're all coping. We're all looking for our coping mechanisms. We're all trying ways to feel better because part of this life is suffering. And who wants to really truly suffer? And it was just that I would say probably out of some act in the universe that what I found to give me those dopamine kicks and to make me feel better was achievement. It was work. It was um, academic and athletic performances where some of my peers ended up, um, you know, in bad relationships, pregnant in eighth grade, um, substances, alcohol, and the likes. And so having kind of wrapped my head around that and then seeing when you know, I really hit rock bottom in 2014, got the help that I needed and then started helping other people. I really did become a peer recovery specialist in the form of a physician coach. I had always been fascinated with, with drugs, with substances. In residency, I specifically did a project around um, uh, prenatal um, abstinence syndrome, um, prenatal opiate use. It was right around the time that um, the X waiver was created. So, you know, we were all in family medicine being like, do we want to do this or do we not? And I remember the advice that I got, it was, you don't want to get an X waiver, Dr. Wiseman, because then you have to deal with those kind of people. Um, and that stuck with me for a long time. And then, of course, I got out of residency. I got into a rural medicine practice here in Southern Indiana mostly working with um, hardworking, salt-of-the-earth, blue-collar workers. Um, if you think similarly to like the hills of Kentucky with coal mining, that's kind of Southern Indiana as well. So a lot of trucking, coal mining, physical labor jobs where, where people were placed on opiates. And then they increased the dose and increased the dose and increased the dose. And as a young physician, I was getting those folks who um, were on escalated doses of opiates, or had gone into a flow-blown addiction where they were no longer working and they were just seeking substance as well. And I thought, what am I going to do? Like, I went to school way too long to be a drug dealer, but like, how do I, how do I actually help these people and not enable them? Um, so it was one of those, I did go ahead and I took the, it was what, an eight hour class at that point and got the X waiver and, and, you know, I did end up leaving that job. So I wasn't able to be much successful, but I still had like, there was still that like pull when I went into emergency medicine and I saw the people, the repeat folks coming in for their shot of Dilaudid and, 
you know, I noticed that I was one of those docs who would have the conversations with people about like, this isn't the way, like, I understand, like you feel bad. And that's when they were starting to bring in buprenorphine, um, seven day dispils into the ER to help people, you know, who were seeking opiates actually, um, enter into treatment if they were ready. And I remember the gruff about that, like, ah, uh, we're just, you know, enabling these people. And I thought, well, if you're willing to give them some Dilaudid, isn't that enabling as well? Whereas this actually has a program. Um, luckily in Indiana, Indianapolis is a big hub for the DEA. So I always go up to the yearly DEA meetings. I love it. Netflix, if there is a show about any kind of substances, I've already watched it. Uh, my favorite being about the Indiana prisons, because actually Indiana has several DOC facilities. So Baby Behind Bars, if you want to jump into one of those, is a really interesting one. And then I became a, uh, a staff physician for some local county jails. And that, as much as it is like entering a third world country, I really got to see like, these are my people. Because I could sit down with the detainees and talk to them and see what's going on. And I could manage their withdrawal and, you know, make them feel better. because. When you're incarcerated, you're already a place that is full of suffering and, and um, discomfort. And that's when I knew like this has to be a part of my practice. And so when I started my FQHC um, about two years ago now with a special emphasis on addiction, it felt like a coming home, felt like a settling in. And then, like I said, with the intersection with, with coaching, you know, I'm a burnout coach. I'm not specifically a, like addiction coach or a substance coach. But just having conversations, you know, through COVID, it was wine o'clock for everyone. And I thought, I don't, I don't think this is how we want to cope with things. Or, you know, there's more conversations around uh, Amazon shopping. <laughs> you know, we were all getting things shipped and that sort of thing. And so, you know, doctors aren't unicorns. We're people too. And it's just been so amazing to see these two worlds collide because the same things that I would say in a coaching call or on a webinar. I get to say in my exam rooms now, like fall down seven, get up eight. Everyone is recovering from something. You know, those those quippy Aaron Wiseman, enough is a decision type of things. What creates the connection? Is it a connection to be able to reach or to identify that somebody's suffering and to be able to speak into it, reach into it, connect to it or, or something else? I think it's meeting people where they're at and saying, I see you. Whether they're in utter and complete burnout and they hate their life and they can't imagine stepping foot back into the office or the hospital and but having a call and saying like, I see you. Or the guy that comes into the office and is um, acutely withdrawing from heroin and is like, I need help. I think it's, it's seeing people and saying, okay, Here's what we can do. And I think the other thing too is what I've learned both through practice, but also in life. Like if I can make something 10% better, I did my job that way. And so many of these folks who I meet in the office or I meet on Zoom calls for coaching, they just really need that connection. They need somebody to like not breeze by them in the hallway or judge them um, because they're dirty. But just to say like, okay, like I see you and, and I respect your story and this is not your forever. Like, there's a way forward. 
what happens within you? Your ability to connect is extraordinary. I'm curious, does something open up within you? Like what happens within that you are able to create that connection and that acceptance? I like to call it, I like to call it my DO magic because my nurse practitioners even mention this as well. They're like, you can just walk into a room and somebody will tell you their whole life story. And I honestly, I think it's about the presence you bring into a room or that you bring into the conversation to just sit and to just know, like, not going to shy away from it, not going to judge whatever you say or whatever comes out of your mouth or whatever you tell me is your past medical history or how many times you've overdosed or how many rehabs you've been in or you know, for the coaching side, how many nights you've driven home in hopes that you hit a deer or that you hope that you had COVID so you didn't have to go back into the office. Like just to sit there and see that and say, tell me more, just share with me, tell me, tell me about this. And then I think also then, and I think this is where coaching makes me a better doctor is instead of saying, okay, this is what we're going to do just asking them, like, what do you want to do? What do you want right now? Do you just need me to hear your story? And I need to give you some harm reduction methods. Do you actually want treatment? Do you want to be in recovery? And, and really, I try to talk to them about like, what, what does your addiction do for you? Like, because it obviously helps you helped you at some point. But then through the magic of neuroanatomy and all the things in our brain, you know, of course, tolerance and uh, builds up, but like, what did it do for you way back when? And it's so interesting when I, I sit and talk with my patients, you know, so many of them, it goes back to that same time, fourth, fifth grade, whatever was happening in their life at that point. Maybe they shared their first drug experience with a parent and it made them feel better. Or they drank alcohol at eight years old. And then afterwards they didn't feel so anxious anymore. And so like getting back to that and there's so much trauma informed care that needs to happen in the American healthcare system. And I think again, like having been a coach for now almost 10 years, like just being able to approach things lightly and then also sense when maybe it's getting too heavy and helping them shoulder the burden and then also like tuck it back away so that maybe today's not the day to handle it. And then taking this next best small step forward to be like, Maybe today we just get lab work and I'm going to see you back. Or would you be willing, you know, if I come to work release and visit you since you're not able to get out to the appointment. And I think it's also that like Aaron Wiseman special sauce of like, I'm not afraid to walk into the jail or to the work release or give anybody a hug that they, I think they feel a difference. So that tells me how you do it and what you do. Now I'm curious what happens within you. Do you have a feeling like this is what I'm meant to do? This is who I am? Yeah, absolutely. A feeling that I'm meant to do and almost like um, a meeting of souls. Like, like truly like a, I see you on an even parallel level. Got it. Like you get to be there too. Mm-hmm. You don't have to exclude yourself or be somebody else. And I think that's been the most important thing for me in my 
professional modification (laughs) so I don't burn out again. No matter what work I do moving forward, if I'm not able to show up as myself, then that's not the job for me. And so it was really interesting in this job, this non-for-profit I work with, I told them, I said, you need to Google me before you hire me. And you need to be with, okay with everything that you see on the internet. You know, and I, and I said, I'm not changing it. Like, I'm still going to podcast. I'm still going to be a, a sassy, sweary mom. This is who I am, and this is how I'm going to show up. And if this is going to be a problem for your organization, then okay. Like, take me or leave me. It's, it, is, it is 100% okay. And they said, no, no, it's fine. We actually think this is really great. So there's a lot of people who deal with addictions at some, at some level, whether it's themselves personally, whether it's a family member, a child, a friend, a colleague, somebody. And boy, there's a lot of emotion that builds up and frustration and suffering as well. Can you speak to that? Like, How can we set some of that down and develop more compassion or ability to be present? You know, the first thing what I do to help break it down and help um, with those big emotions is really understanding the biopsychological model of addiction and really understanding that, I mean, I hated it in med school, but I love it now, that neuroanatomy, those neurochemicals and like what's actually happening. Because, I mean, there's been enough studies now that, of course, um, you know, they gave rats cocaine and then watch what their brains did and they do it the same with methamphetamine and opiates. But now we've got with functional MRI, we're seeing that those behavioral addictions like gambling, like pornography, like working, even we're looking at now at like body modifications, what neurochemicals, what part of the brain lights up. And it's very similar to substance use or alcohol use. You know, it's all down in your mesolimbic system, helps shut off that frontal lobe, that prefrontal cortex, which is like, you know, our control panel and gets down into our primitive brain. And so I think if we go back to our basic science model and recognize that this is part of the reward system and and also recognize that people are suffering and this is how they're coping, then to me, that's what helps bring so much compassion and so much empathy to them. And like yesterday, I was sitting down with a patient, 20 plus years of methamphetamine use, currently in recovery for a couple of years now. And they mentioned, I just don't feel right. And I'm like, absolutely, of course you don't feel right. Like your brain has been literally changed by methamphetamine. Here, let me tell you about it on a basic level so that they don't feel like I'm broken. Because that's another saying I tell people, like, things get broken, not people. And so just saying, like, no, your, your brain is different now, fundamentally different, I think helps to remind people that, again, to bring your compassion back. And we know so much about addiction is a multifocal I mean, there's the behavioral mental health component, of course, like I said, was talking about like the neurochemical component. There's also those like social economic um, things like access to healthcare, stable housing. And the big one that's really coming forward right now in the literature is safety. We know that when people have an internal sense of safety, yeah, maybe they may be in a physically safe place, 
But if people don't feel that internal safety security, they won't recover. They won't be able to maintain recovery because again, they're trying to feel better. And I think so if you personally are struggling or, you know, a family member or a colleague, I think at reminding yourself that one, their brain's been hijacked by whatever substance or behavior. Two, addiction is not a moral failing. It's morally neutral. And that there are treatment paths to help, but everybody has to come to treatment in their own way. It's not like, oh, you have high blood pressure. Let's put you on lisinopril. Oh, you developed cough. Let's go to losartan. Oh, now, you know, whatever, it's not working. Like, they're, they're, that treatment plan looks different for different people. Maybe it's formal, you know, going inpatient and then doing a treatment center and then stepping down to outpatient treatment like what I do. Some people, their point of entry is AANA, and, and that's what works for them. Other people, the religious aspect of those type of groups is, is not helpful. So having a peer recovery specialist, somebody who has walked the walk, is most helpful for them. And so, again, I think it's just meeting them where they're at. And the last thing I want to emphasize is strong boundaries for yourself. Folks who are in addiction, be it whatever it may, their brain is pushing them to find substance to do the next behavior, get on Amazon and shop or um, whatever it is. And so that there is a manipulation component. I think that's what burns a lot of, I know that's what burns a lot of bridges for friends and families and the people who are their helpers. But it's up to us to not be the enablers, but instead to demonstrate, to demonstrate those healthy boundaries and what I remind my, my family and my friends of my patients is that tough love is still love. It's, it is appropriate. And that codependency is a real thing. And it's difficult. And so taking care of yourself in the best ways possible is really helping that other person as well. I have to remind myself frequently in every aspect of my life that my judgment is not going to make the situation better. I've learned it several times. Yeah. And I think we have to, too, like check our biases. They're unconsciously there under the surface. They just are. And that's part of living intentional, though. We can't control what our brain thinks, just like we can't control our heart rate. But what we can do is is how we respond to that. And that's one thing that I really emphasize with my staff is that you have to keep yourself in a healthy place. And if you are not there, then you're not ready to take care of people. Because you are going to get snippy on the phone or you're going to say a flippant comment and, and then it's not going to land right. It's going to be more harmful than helpful. And reminding them too, like sometimes silence is the best answer. What I hear you saying is that there's not one right way for recovery to go down that path. There's not one way of recovering. There are many. And it's really the fundamental important thing is that the individual wants to take that path. Yeah, it's just meeting them where they're at. Either they may be going down that path because they're forced because of criminal justice process, or they they may be meeting you because um, something else has spurred them. Their reason is valid no matter what it is. And <laughs> I love using the example of my diabetics and positioning this similarly to someone who's maybe in alcohol or um, opiate use disorder. So think of all your diabetics you've ever taken care of. And how many of them have probably been Dunkin' Donuts or Krispy Kreme or Dairy Queen 
or went to the church ice cream social, you know, and, and splurge. Now, do we call those relapse? Do we call those return to uses and diabetics? No, we don't. We're like, oh, they just had a little cheat day. Yeah, but they have a very serious disease, diabetes, you know, like you can lose a leg, kidneys, eyes from that. Like it's, it's serious. Then why do we so harshly judge those with substance use disorder, knowing what we know now that it is a chronic brain disease with mental health implications? So I think it's, it's having those checkpoints too and like having those remembering our biases and like, why is that disease good and okay, but this one isn't. What have you seen, especially among family members or friends that has been helpful for the individual? Like I said, for sure, boundaries, making sure those friends and families themselves are getting the support um, that they need, whether it's like formal therapy or social supports around them. I think having an understanding of the patient's diagnosis. And actually I'm getting ready to do a public um, conference here in my little area specifically pointed towards friends and family so they can understand a little bit more of it. I think also it's like, we always want to know why. And so many times parents are like, how did this happen? You know, like, why did this happen? We don't do drugs or, you know, we may drink a little bit or, you know, and, and it's really then going back and reminding people that maybe experiences were not traumatic to you, but to your person, they have their own experience and they're, they're actually entitled to tell you if that's a significant event. So not downplaying people, but then also getting them into specifically trauma care. Um, I think is so vitally important as well. When I see physicians who have have pretty significant addictions, burnout is at the core of it, depression, suffering, you know, and again, like we have access to medication and to drugs that do make you feel rather nice or better. And so remembering that, because I think whenever a physician gets picked up by the DEA, we all kind of like back up like it's the plague like oh i don't want to catch that but just remembering like any one of us could be susceptible to this it's a diagnosis that's not of exclusion i mean if you have a brain if you have past trauma and experience if you have any kind of any kind of addiction in the in your family history you have the potential to be there as well and again like that's been my question it was like why was mine work and not something else and it, part of it, I think it was the stigma of like, don't do drugs <laughs> in the 80s. You know, this is your brain on drugs, frying pan pictures that may have helped. But I think we also have to shine a light on those rather nuanced behaviors that it's like, oh, yeah, Wiseman gets stuff done. She's always here. She's reliable. When in fact, um, that can be a very harmful and negative behavior as well. What worries you about addiction? And then we're going to flip it around and ask what gives you hope. I check the obituaries regularly for my patients. I do. I worry about them. Like who did everybody make it, you know, or we recently had um, a couple overdose deaths and they, they had never come and see me, but of course my patients, they were their friends. And, you know, they said, Oh, I wish they'd get in here and see you Wiseman. I said, yeah, I wish they would have too. And so the lack of care and access by the end of the year, God willing, and the creek don't rise, I'll have my addiction board. And, and that feels significant to me to have that level of education and to bring it into my region um, so that we can have more conversations 
we have talks and all sorts of health fairs about heart health and checking your blood pressure and stuff. If I put a container of naloxone on the table, people think it's like a snake. They're like, oh, I don't need that. And it's like, no, it's maybe not evidently for you, but maybe it's for somebody else who could use it because dead people can't recover. And so I think that's what um, most bothers me, specifically in my area, you know, in rural medicine, we deal a lot with um, opiates and methamphetamine and it's, it's not safe. Supplies are really dangerous right now. That's what worries me is, is my people. How do you reconcile that? Or Do you know the poem about the starfish and the boy who's like walking along the sea and all these starfish had walked up and there's an old man watching this boy and he'd reach down and he'd pick up and he'd throw that starfish back into the ocean and then he'd walk and pick up another one. And he just kept throwing it and the old man approached him and said, you know, you can't do all of this. You can't save all of these starfish. And the boy picks one up and said, but I made a difference to that one. I think that's, that's where I am right now. Yeah. It's real human life and it's real human suffering and it's hard to watch. I watch it in the hospital and I have to find that space of just saying it's, it's okay. I can't do what people don't want done. And I also, there are limits to what I can do as one human Yeah, and not everything is mine to do. It's sitting in the suck, you know? But I think as, you know, the X waiver has gone away, which I think is actually a really great thing because hopefully that will start to numb out the bias that physicians have like, oh, buprenorphine is a really dangerous drug. Tylenol is more dangerous than buprenorphine. And so hopefully that will have more practitioners, both doctors, APPs, um, who are willing to prescribe it, even if it's for one patient, you know, like maybe they see you, Dr. George, in the hospital and you you talk to them and they're ready. And so you give them, you know, a, a weak script for buprenorphine until they can get to their provider. And now, now any PCP can continue that on. Um, and there's not a huge amount of regulations around it. Um, you know, if you're prescribing Lortab or uh, any of the hydrocodone oxycodone, like you need to be prescribing buprenorphine too. It has less implication or less chances of overdose than those other pain medicines you're giving. So I'm hoping that I'm hoping more surgeons start doing it as well for folks, um, you know, who have acute pain care because buprenorphine actually does help with acute pain as well as help with cravings. Just reconciling that addiction treatment is primary care. Like if I can, I need to probably have a banner made of that and to show like, you don't need to go to a specialist for this. Um, it's super easy and it's super gratifying work to help people. And and so I hope just, you know, that's, I think that's how you rectify it is you help your one starfish and hopefully that starfish finds the next person to help them a little further down into the ocean. Yeah. Cause having your friends say, Hey, you know, there's this place and it's really good is that's a lot of credibility. What else gives you hope? So X waiver going away more discussion here locally. I've been doing a lot of work with criminal justice and, and doing a lot of education around that, like MAT medication assisted treatment is not a duct tape fix for opiate use disorder, that this is, this is actually medicine. Um, similarly, going back to my diabetic example of if I said, no, insulin's too dangerous. I'm not going to prescribe it because insulin is dangerous. What kind of risk would you be putting those people to if you just like they just exited your clinic 
it's the same thing with opiate use disorder being like, no, I, I, I can't prescribe uh, buprenorphine or no, you're on drug court. So you can't be on any kind of medication and not seeing for it for what I believe it truly is, which is, is treatment, which is uh, a working relationship with your healthcare provider that a lot of these people, they haven't been to a doctor except if it's emergency room visit or since they were a child really getting in touch because if you don't have your health, you really don't have anything. So that gives me hope is that there's more and more discussions in the prisons, jails, uh, community correction circles, recognizing that like, oh, we can decrease recidivism and violence within our facilities. Um, we, we actually can help people move through the system more successfully and um, get them out into a life that is thriving rather than them leaving and then they're back in three months. They're seeing the actual proof. And so um, that gives me hope that we can start catching people there. And as it becomes more status quo, you know, working with other people as well. There's been a lot of studies that come out that show that um, middle-class, upper-class white people um, have access and everybody else, they don't have access to buprenorphine, which is a it's a great medication to help them. You've grown and changed a lot professionally since starting at the FQHC. Mm-hmm. What stands out as far as who you've become from that experience and what you're able to offer? When I was a little kid, I grew up in a super conservative um, Baptist church. And the only ways that people, that women could be leaders were if they were Sunday school teachers, missionaries, or um like doctor doctors in the field they couldn't be pastors they couldn't be like head of church um i have always known that there is a leadership component built into my soul and now in the place that i work that place in my my soul sings that that i am doing the leadership that i'm supposed to be doing and i'm helping people in a way that only aaron wiseman can help them And I think that's been the biggest thing. And then also recognizing too, I mean, you know, I've done so much professional development. I I talk about uh, physician workplace issues. Actually, I'm getting ready to do a talk here in a couple, in about a month in Nebraska. And actually to like, not just have the playbook, but to run the plays on the field has been great too. Sending an email instead of having a meeting (laughs) type of thing forcing my staff to take lunch and to take breaks you know because it's so easy just to work through the day and have a bladder that's the size of a two liter bottle having conversations about not just how the job is doing but how are you doing and cultivating a workplace that i only dreamt about years ago and now i actually have that in real life and don't get me wrong there's dumpster fires every single day yesterday was a horrendous clinic day but we got through it we're fine. And everybody got taken care of. And, um, you know, we're back up and running again today. So I think the job has definitely changed me. And I almost felt like feel like that I have been cultivated for such a time as this. Final thoughts. What does everyone need to know? Everyone needs to know that they're not alone, that this is not your forever. Help is available for those who ask. You're an amazing soul. I'm so deeply honored to be part of your life and that you're part of mine. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you said yes to coming on my podcast. Shoot, that was like 2017, 2018. (laughs) 
when I randomly posted it on the internet. So I'm so glad about that. And um, I just want to put a call out to your listeners. I mean, if these are the kind of conversations that we have, like when we are on the trail or when we're hanging out, whenever Dina is hosting an event, you will most likely see Aaron Wiseman there unless like I absolutely like on my deathbed. So I would encourage, I, I just think it's so important to have these connection points and to have people that you can have conversation with. And also, don't you think, Dina, it's been so great to see how each of us have grown and shifted and and kind of also like take a pulse check of each other as well to be like, okay, how are you? Where are things right now? You know, and and just have really real conversation. They are very real conversations in our very real life of figuring it out and our conversation started before the recording, finding that place of contentment. Mm-hmm. We'll have to do our next podcast recording about that because I think a lot of people are searching for it and it's hard. It is. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you.